I'm going to ask that you turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to find a passage that is extremely practical uh, to us as a church and as families uh, as we study together and read and look at verse 3 and go through verse 16. We looked last last time at the idea that we are, as a family, supposed to relate to one another as family, uh, to treat uh, elder men as fathers and to treat younger men as brothers and older women as mothers and younger women as sisters without purity and, and that it was all done in the theme of confronting one another. Um, and we know that if uh, we live together as a family, that is inevitable. There's going to be moments of confrontation uh, that has to be done, but it's done in a very um, loving, honoring way. And so Paul takes that theme and elaborates a little bit further on that in verses uh, 3 on down. In fact, the rest of the book is really about honoring people um, and practical ways of, of how that is done. And so we're going to look today at, at honoring widows, and obviously that uh, impacts a certain group of us. But I think also as we look at the criteria for the women, uh, the widows that are to be honored, it is instructional to all women, but it's also instructional to men in, in how we deal with women uh, and widows uh, especially. And so I think there's a lot of application here that does uh, hit especially women. Um, I, uh, In preparation of this time, I dared... To look at the online version of Red Book, just to see what was being said uh, for women. Um, I asked Julie, "Is that still one of the main magazines?" And she said, "That was one of them." You know. Um, so, according to Red Book, some instructions, things that women need to know. You need to know the trends that you'll be wearing this fall. This fall, it kind of took me back. That's several seasons from now. Um, uh, week eight, plan to get your body back. Six silent ways, he says, I love you. Fifty knockout date night hairstyles. Gingered peach margarita. Uh, the bracology, your needs versus his needs. Um, well, you get the point. Um, I'm afraid to read too much more. <laughs> um, it's it's interesting when you go to these magazines and you know I'm picking on women but guys magazines are not any better um, of what is said and it's interesting to, to see according to the magazine what is salvation I, I don't if next time you go to the grocery store ask that question according to this magazine what is salvation and it's going to be, it's usually on every uh, magazine cover what they think salvation looks like. If you have this in your life, then life is worth living if you've got this. And so it's the ever pursuit for salvation. And it, and it hits us how shallow it is, but nonetheless, it is striking to say that if you've got these things, if you have a gingered peach margarita, then your life is better. Um, if, if you know the silent ways he says I love you, then your life has meaning. Um, if you know the trends for every season, including fall of 2013, then life is better. If you know what the, uh, the trend is for the, the bag in spring, then you, you, your life is better. And it is just a stark contrast uh, to 1 Timothy 5. And the instructions for widows and for women and what is presented as salvation. Uh, I read this and I thought, man, there are so many ways I can get in trouble this week as I read this. And so I'm just trusting the Holy Spirit will lead me. And then I'll try not to deviate from that. Um, I have hope in that. So let's read this together as it is God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3 through 16. And looking at the instructions for church and, and relating to women especially widows. So let's stand as we read this together. Honor 
widows. Who are truly widows? But if a woman or if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. And if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. You may be seated. Just in ways of reminder, it's always helpful to remember what the point of the book is. Uh, this is given to us in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, verse 15, that the point of the book is that we will know how to behave in the household of God, or literally know how to behave in God's family, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so the instructions given to us modify that, helps us be, to become that. And so if we want to be a pillar and buttress of truth, we want to be God's family if we want to be the church where the living God is at, then these are actions we do. These are priorities we take. And so it's interesting that it is giving instruction for how we are to take care of widows. That might seem strange unless you've read the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible in Psalm 68 verse 5 tells us that the Father, that God is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. We see in the Old Testament and Deuteronomy and Leviticus that God had always given special provision for those who were widows who did not have a family to take care of them to ensure that they had livelihood. And there were some special instructions and, and economic practices of how they were to be cared for in God's land. Interesting. I want you to consider... The, res the resurrection uh, instances of the Bible. If you think about it, most of the times when God miraculously raises someone from the dead, it's in relationship to a woman who is widowed. Have you thought about that? What would cause God to suspend the normal rules of nature and bring someone up from the dead? Well, we see in the case of 1 Kings chapter 17, Elijah with the widow of Zarephath, that she comes in and helps take care of her. But when the time comes that her son dies, that he's raised from the dead. It's interesting that we see this more than once in the Bible. If you think about a lot of the instances of Jesus, you see that Jesus seems to take note of the widows. And in Mark 12, in the temple, he takes note of the widow who gives uh, just two widows' mites, as we've called it, but then praises her sacrifice and has special note for what this widow has done. And we see another example in Luke chapter 7. Verse 12, in a widow's home, you see that Jesus approaches the city of Nain and there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and many people of the city were with her. 
Because of her son's death, no one was left to care for her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bear, bear and they came that bore him, sat still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak and delivered him to his mother. I think about Lazarus. When he calls Lazarus forth, uh, the situation is that he was a brother and that there was two sisters and we have no indication of anyone else in that family. It could very well be that God raises Lazarus up from the dead, not only for the great glory to be given to the Father, but also because of a very pragmatic instance of this is someone to care for these sisters. Remember what Jesus said on the cross? He only made just a few statements. And he only talked to two people outside of the Father. He talked to the uh, thief on the cross, saying, Today you will be with me in paradise. And then when he looked down, he saw Mary and said to the beloved disciple next to her, Behold your mother. Woman, behold your son. Isn't it interesting that one of the last things that Jesus did on the cross was to make sure that his mother was cared for that evidently was widowed at this point. Isn't it interesting? Have you thought about that? How important it is in the Bible that you see those who are widowed cared for. Why? Well, the Bible says that he is the father of the fatherless and that he is the defender of the widow and that now the church is what? The body of of Christ. Should it be as a surprise that we see a passage like this? When we see in the Old Testament, we see in the New Testament, that it is God's desire to care for those who have been marginalized, those who have no one there to care for them, that he says to the church, you are my body. I'm not there anymore. But when I was there, I raised people up from the dead to make sure that they were cared for. When I was there on the cross, I made provision to make sure my widowed mother was cared for. So is there any wonder that now that he is uh, in the presence of the Father, that his spirit is here, that we take, that we become his flesh, is there any wonder that there's instructions like this? It shouldn't be a surprise. But it's funny how it's not that emphasized that much today. But it's all throughout the Bible. We see that as the church is born, uh, that one of the, the rises of the deacons in Acts chapter 6 is in uh, the fact of that they were caring for the widows. And so the deacons are born to help distribute to them in Acts chapter 6. We see this with Peter at Joppa in the city of, in Acts 9, in the city of Joppa lived a kind and gracious believer named Tabitha, also called Dorcas which I would prefer Tabitha on that one, but she became sick and died. But notice what happens in this passage in Acts 9. Uh, the believers heard that Peter was in the nearby city of Lydia and they sent for him, knowing that God had used him to demonstrate power. And in Acts 9, 39, all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas has made while she was with them. So evidently Dorcas was a, a, a younger woman. But she used her resources to care for the widows. And she was known for these great deeds. And so Peter asked everyone in the room to leave. Kneeled down and prayed. And turning to the body said Tabitha rise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter she sat up. Isn't that interesting? In the Old Testament you see those who care for widows raised up. In the New Testament. You see those who cared for widows, raised up, Jesus on the cross, providing for it. So consequently, when we come to the book of James, he summarized God's compassion for widows. He says in James 1.27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows and their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So church, if we're going to be God's family... There has to be intentional resources set aside, time on our lives set aside to caring for those who are widowed. Now, verse 3, I just want you to understand the simple point. God's family honors the desolate widow. God's family honors, and notice the key word, desolate widow. He simply says, verse 3, honor widows. Who are truly widows. When it has the phrasing honor like that. 
we have seen several times in the Bible where honor not only is just our attitude, but it also brings for it financial dealings. And for example, in Matthew 15, Jesus is talking about how the Jews typically were to honor their parents and how they did not honor their parents, but instead cursed their father and mother in Matthew 15, verse 3 through 6, and talks about that if you honor them, that it's done by a gift. And Matthew 15, verse 3 through 6. So when we see that word honor, it usually has a financial implication that we see in Matthew 15. And we're going to see it right here in dealing with widows. I think it says, honor widows who are truly widows. All right? So the, the idea here is that they are totally alone in the world and without resources. Totally alone in the world without resources. They are forsaken. Now, I would argue that that definition of being forsaken is not just those who have endured death. It could also refer to women who have been forsaken by a husband. Something to consider in that. Because they are in the same situation many times. I don't know how many... There's several women we were just visiting in Mingo Creek where, where they were in their 50s, they were without a job, had been without a job for... For a couple years, they have no husband, yet they're having children, and they're just talking about the need that is there. And I know that's true in our own church, where there's people like that, that are are dealing with the the life as it is. And it is, as they look around, they think, I'm, I'm alone, and there's no one that's stepping up for me, no one that's caring for me, and making sure that provisions are made. And so I would just argue that it's not just those who endure death, but those who have been forsaken or desolate, uh, because of perhaps marriage situations of guys leaving um, their wives. Now, as we read on down, it says who, true, who are truly widows. But as we get to verse 4, we're going to start seeing that, that Scripture gives us some instructions. And, and this is simply it. Not only does God's family honor the desolate widow, but listen, God's family discriminates the support. Uh, yeah, I said that right. God's family discriminates the support. He is instructing the church to, do, to discriminate. There are some people that we're going to help more than others. And so there's going to be a discernment. There's going to be some qualifications that we're looking for. So what on earth, what, what are we discriminating on? Well, first of all, he's instructing them to discriminate based on no family support. If there is no family support, then that is part of the qualification for how we're to help. But if there is family support, then the instruction is they are to do their job as a family. So see that in verse 4? But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household. And here's the simple idea, and I'm just going to bring out something here, and I've shared this before. If your Christian faith is not impacting who you are as a father, as a mother, as a child as a brother and sister, as a grandchild, if your Christian faith is not impacting in that arena, then it's not impacting your life. It doesn't matter if it's not hitting your family life. And you can put up a good front at the church, you can put up a good front in the business world and the social world at large, but if you are not being Christ-like in your home, then you have not hit first base. And if you've not hit first base, it doesn't matter if you're on second, right? It doesn't matter if you get the home plate if you never made it to first base. And so the idea is first base for us is how we are with our families. So the instruction is make sure that we're showing godliness to their own household. It starts in the family and to make some return to their parents. This is instructing us. This is commanding us. It is, it is so far in, in our Western society. In our Western society, society, we value, among anything else, independence. Think about it. When we talk about having health problems, you know what makes it a problem? What makes it a problem? Is that we don't have independence. Think about it. I can't go out and do what I used to do. I'm now having to be dependent. And so we put large resources and to make sure that we have good health so that we can maintain our independence. And it is a, a, a high value in Western society. 
It's not so much of a value in the Bible, is it? That's not at all what he's teaching here. He says, no, families, make sure they're dependent on you and make some return to their parents. It is a good thing. It is something, it is an honor for us to be able to do. And, and so much of, a, of our thinking is, how can I go through life with being the least amount of burden on others in our life? I can understand that thinking because we value independence. But understand, family needs to go through the fire of caring for one another because it's not a fire, it is a blessing to be able to do that. To make provisions and plan ahead to take care of your family. Those who have come before you and have cared for you. Whether your children, our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews. That if they bear your name, they're of your blood. That is to say, you're the first line. The first line of showing God's love. Of showing God's love. And is it ever a bad thing to be in a position to show God's love? That's the idea. So, this is, notice what it says, this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, when I, when, anytime I hear the word say, pleasing in the sight of God, I go directly to Hebrews 11, 6. You know what Hebrews 11, 6 says? For without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he must believe that he is, and that he is a, a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, when I see this combination... Take care of your family, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Well, most of you know, if I'm going to be taking care of my family, I'm going to have to be trusting God. Because I'm going to have to depend on resources that I don't necessarily see right here. I don't see the strength right now. And so that's the point. God intentionally places you in circumstances where you have to depend on something other than your resources. That is by God's design. And if you're living a life where all you see are the resources and you can see how life is planned out on the resources you have, then you're not living by faith. And you're not pleasing God. It is to depend on God's resources to take care of your family. Understanding that you're in God's direction, in His will... To care for those who are older than you and providing for them. And that may be that you are starting all over again with life and that you're waking up in the middle of the night to help someone to get up, to feed them, to clean them. We live, of course, in a, a time where we've got all kinds of facilities, long-term health insurance. Um, we've got uh, uh, the assisted livings. We can hire people. And all these things are helpful tools, but it does not preempt the burden that is upon us by the Lord. It is ours to care for those who are above us. Now, those of you who have younger ones, don't rob them. Don't rob them of the opportunity to exercise faith and love of God. And our desire to not be a burden... Do you understand that God's designed life in that way? And, and listen, just wanting to break this to you, you're already a burden. You're already a burden. But it is a burden of love. And it is good to be felt, that burden of love. For it's pleasing in the sight of God, in verse 4. Now, let's keep on reading verse 5. We're going to see that there is uh, more to be said about this, uh, making sure there's family support. You notice that down in verse 7, um, verse 8, it, it says in a negative way. If anyone does not provide for relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. So positive, if you bear it, you're pleasing God. And on the negative, if you deny it, you're denying the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, what's that being said? Well, what's simply being said is most unbelievers already know this is right to do. And if we don't do what unbelievers know is right to do, then we're worse than an unbeliever. That's what's being said. And we are denying the faith. Now, how, how, is, that, how is that true? Well, what's the point of faith? 
is to help us to know the grace of God. But by grace through faith, we come and we fulfill the law. What's the law? Love God with all your heart. And second unto is love your neighbor as yourself. And so when we find ourselves in places we're not loving God and loving neighbors, we are denying the faith because that is the point of faith is to glorify God through love. And so we are, we are in the negative and so we are denying the faith. Titus 1.16 says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, we go back to verse 5. We'll find that there's another uh, criteria of, of which God's family is to discriminate. Not only is it discriminating based on the fact that there's no family support, but it's discriminating also based on devotion to God. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone. And that's that forsaken idea. Has set her hope in God. As opposed to what Red Book would say. <laughs> they see God as their salvation. Not what they look like. Not their economic well-being. But God is their salvation. And so consequently continues in supplications and prayers Night and day. I think that this is the example of Anna that you see in Luke chapter 2, verse 36 or 37, that she was in the temple and made a special note of how long she's been a widow, but she had devoted herself to God in prayer. Verse 6. Here's the counter to that. As opposed to being devoted to God, setting their hope in prayer, the Alternative is that she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Wow. Did you know you could die before you die? That's what Scripture's saying. These who are self-indulgent, their heart's still beating, their mind's still working, but they are spiritually dead and they're just waiting for a coffin to make it evident. been Ezekiel 16:49 has a Septuagint which is the Greek version of the Old Testament uses the same word of self-indulgent and, and it refers to careless ease if you're living for careless ease and that's your goal in life room service that's your goal perpetual room service then you're already dead it has a lot of implications, doesn't it? I don't think it's just talking to widows. I think it says anybody who is self-indulgent, you're dead, even while you're still living. We've got to be careful how we view retirement. We've got to be careful how we view our weekends. To say, I'm, I'm just going to be indulging myself. I saw somewhere where someone had it on the car, I'm, I'm retired, so don't ask me to do anything. And the, and the thought is that it's all about what I want to do. I was visiting this past Monday, Miss Doris Davis, of whom we had her funeral yesterday. So Monday I was there at the hospice home, and um, I knew it was going to be soon. And I went in and with her. I wasn't sure even then whether she was alive when I first saw her because she was just so close. Um, but her eyes opened up while I was talking to her. And just, I was sharing with her from Romans, Psalm 23, talking about heaven, what it is we're looking to, and just trusting that she could hear what I was saying. And I noticed that she was just looking out her window. She was just turned that way and looking out her window. And anytime you visit someone in that condition, it is just, it's perspective changing. And to realize 80 years of her life, and this is where she's at. And she's going to say goodbye to her house. She said goodbye to her dog. She said goodbye to her clothes. She's saying goodbye to her body. She's saying goodbye to her, her children, her, her sons and her daughter, grandchildren, her career, whatever account is there left. She's saying goodbye to these things. All the things that Red Book says, hey, really care about the next fall trend. Really care about whether or not 
someone's telling you they, they love you. That you're the center of intention. And it's all about to go. And I was just walking away from there thinking, she still has a lot of hope. She still has a, an eternity of hope. And in that moment to say, I'm leaving it all behind, but I've got more to look forward to than I'm leaving behind. She still lives. Though her body is dead. And then there are some whose body is still alive, but are dead already. And the difference is how you set your heart and mind. Am I setting it on myself and the things that, I, that please me? Because this is going to die. Or am I setting it toward God and those things that matter to Him? And though my body dies, I still live. And let me just make application, not just to the widows, not just to men and women individually. Church. Church. Are we self-indulgent? Is it all about what is good for our church? What is just builds upon who we are? Builds upon our reputation? Builds upon our influence? Church, let me just warn us that we can fit into this mode of being self-indulgent in church. If we're self-indulgent, we are dead though we still are here. Matthew 16, 25 says, He who saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, if you find yourself in a situation where you're having to expend your resources to care for someone above you, someone older than you, praise God. It's an opportunity to not be self-indulgent. It's an opportunity to find life by losing what you think is life. The fact of the matter is, how do I deny myself? How do I take up my cross? More than often, uh, denied, taking up my cross and denying myself is going to look like loving someone else. Or I have to deny myself. Verse 7. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. And then we keep on reading. We, we see that it's, it's based on uh, this discrimination is based on the fact there's no family support. The discrimination is based on devotion to God. We're going to look at that a little bit more. But it's also based on age. Verse 9. Evidently, you see in verse 9, it says, Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Evidently, in the early church, they had a, an organization set up where they had people on roll, so to speak, of which these are going to be ones that we especially are able to care for, that we want to make sure that their needs are met. And so this is kind of filling out the criteria of how do you get on that list of that church that's especially caring for them. And so there's an age limit, which is uh, probably the what they viewed the retirement age uh, at that time period. Having been the wife of one husband, it's the same type of terminology used in 1 Timothy 3 in regards to elders and deacons. It's not it's not talking about a uh, a a state that you're in, of that you've got one husband now. Obviously, he doesn't, she doesn't have one husband now. She, she's a widow, or she's been forsaken. The idea is that it's a characteristic, like you see in the rest of the qualifications of the pastors and elders, uh, and that you'll see here, that these are people who have a mindset of having one man in their life. Okay, that they are devoted to that man. And so that this was not a woman of reputation of who got around, so to speak. But this was a woman that was devoted to her husband. And then verse 10, having a reputation for good works. And it it talks about what some of these good works are. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality and, and that day and time that you... You didn't want to go into the motels. And so if people were traveling through, believers were traveling through to open up your home uh, and to make them at home and care for them, has washed the feet of the saints, and it's referring here to humility and a humble service of caring for the needs of people, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. What I love about this 
as it talks about what we would often consider utterly mundane task. Caring for children, bringing them up. You know, what's said so simply, having brought up children. Well, those who are bringing up children and brought up children know that that is a world of task. I heard this past week that, that, that women who have sons have a shorter lifespan. <laughs> I didn't know how true that was on NPR. Um, I shared that with my wife. We have two of them. Um, I could see that. Uh, they, they were talking about how you carry the baby, and the baby's often being heavier and stuff. But, uh, but I, could, I could see that. Um, so, but do you know that bringing up children and all that entails, according to this passage, is a good work, devoting yourself to good work that is part of what makes you uh, righteous or that allows for you to be to act righteously in your everyday life. I want you to understand those of you who are in that process of bringing up children, caring for others and all that entails, whether it's sweeping the floors, wiping the tables, constantly mopping the floors, all that entails is part of being righteous. It is a good and godly thing. It is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. It is not just mundane tasks that you have to do until you really do important stuff. It is the important stuff. That you do. Our faith is not just done in churches and stained glass windows. It is done with dirty floors, nasty feet, snotty noses. Verse 11. Not only do God's family discriminate the support, God's family honors the forsaken. But we see that in verse 11 on down, God's family is going to consider the outcome of the support. It matters. What's the end result of the support? What will it produce in this person's life? And, and as you read this passage, you're going to realize that the early church and the church today have to make some hard decisions because the, the people that are coming to them, they all needed it. Most of them needed it. But just need alone didn't make the list. Verse 11, but refused to enroll younger widows. So he says, well, consider the outcome if we support younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry. And so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, what he's not talking about is that if you're a widow, you're a young woman and you marry again, that you've left the faith. That's not what he's saying. Evidently, to be part of this list is also entailing a pledge of sorts that you make to God and the church. You see this example in 1 Corinthians 7 where, where Paul himself seems to make this pledge that he will serve Christ. But what he's saying is that if you make that pledge, you're making that pledge to God. And if you turn your back on that pledge, then you are incurring wrath because you're lying to God. And so it's not saying that you're losing your salvation, but it's saying that, that you've made a pledge. When you've made a conscious decision, there's, a, there's one of two outcomes, that you either devote your life for the rest of your life to the service of the Lord as a single person, or you go and get married. And you do one or the other. And if you make that pledge and then later decide to get married, then you're going and renouncing a vow you've made to God. And so verse 11 is there to, to give us consideration before we are rash in our vows to God, saying, yeah, I'm going to spend the rest of my life uh, to serve the Lord and, and not serve a man and, and to be a wife of sorts. Uh, and then you realize later on, oh, what was I thinking? I, I don't want to do that. And so it's, it's a warning against that direction. In fact, he instead says... To encourage them. You notice verse 14. I would have younger widows marry. There's an encouragement to do that. And the outcome. Verse 13. Besides that they learn to be idlers. Going about from house to house. Not only idlers but also gossip. And busybodies. Saying what they should not. Now, I would just present to you that this is not an example just for widows. This is an example for everybody. All right? This is an example for all women and all men. The point of being is that if you ever find yourself in this widowed state, that you've lived a life like this already when you were not. 
a widow. But that you had uh, this characteristic of, of, of staying busy in serving the Lord, not creating trouble. Now, gossip. Some people think that gossip is just saying things that are not true. Now, that's a wrong definition of gossip. That's what you call lying. All right? That's what you call slandering. So gossip is not just making up stuff. It is, in fact, talking about things that are true. But you're saying things that ought not to be said. You notice what the Scripture says? Saying things what they should not. It is to talk about things to people that have no business hearing. They don't need to know about these things. And so the simple formula in helping us understand what gossip is, is when we're talking to someone about a problem of which that person is not a part of that problem, are part of the solution. Then they don't need to know. And oftentimes we try to gossip and we, we talk about things that we know to make ourselves feel more important. And then sometimes we want to listen because you can't gossip without listening. That's passive gossip, but it's gossip, and we're listening to it. And sometimes we want to listen because it makes us feel more important. Even though we're not part of the problem, we're not part of the solution. But man, I'd, yeah, I'd like to know that. And so, he's bringing out that these women... It, it, I think maybe this is where we get the phrase, idle hands is the devil's workshop. Could very well be coming from a, a passage like this. That they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. Not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. We need to be careful. Put a formula, a filter. What are we talking about with whom and why? Is it about, I I can't control my mouth, or or that it makes me feel important? This is something we have to pray about and consider. Verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, Manage their households. And and look. And give the adversary no occasion for slander. Do you understand that being someone who talks a lot about things to people that really don't need to hear? You just want to inform them? You just want them to, to pray for this? Do you realize that that is a tool for Satan to work? According to verse 14, the adversary referring to Satan. Satan is called the accuser, calling, called the slanderer. And we are busy accusing people before others. Then we are in the spirit of Satan if we are accusing people before others. Consider that. Verse 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. As they have gone through this and, and not being productive and helping someone and loving somebody. As I look at God's institutions and the family and the church, both of them are laboratories of love. Where we learn about ourselves, we learn humility, we learn about God's love, we, we learn about patience and forgiveness and bearing one another. And so in these institutions of the family and of the church, then what he's simply bringing out to us is that we need to be in the business of loving people and be active in that, pursue that. And that's why you see the next phrase, verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. And so if you find yourself in a situation where there are widows around you and you've got the time, you've got the ability to care for them, then he's encouraged them, do so. This is a way to serve the Lord. Loving them, caring for them. Evidently, that was the role of Tabitha Dorcas who used her resources and made clothing for these who were were destitute. Now, notice that last phrase, let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. That means sometimes the church has to be careful to do the best to help somebody. And the enemy to the best is sometimes good things. And to make hard decisions to say, you know what, they have some needs, but they also have a family. 
and it is upon them. And maybe we as a church need to talk to their family and make sure they're caring for them. But if we, if we do that there and help them there, then that means that we can't help someone who has nobody because our, our resources are directed without discrimination. I've often uh, had my dad talk to me about this and gave me some wisdom about giving. And he just made it aware to me that when I give out of my resources to help somebody, you need to understand you're not just giving your money. You're giving your wife's money. You're giving your children's money. And perhaps maybe you need to make that discussion with your family before you give. Because all your family is going to sacrifice to give toward that end. This is something we need to consider also as a church body. That we, need, we are going to help people, but there must be some discrimination. And figure out what is, what is the, the needs that are, that are uniquely given to this church that we can meet and measure and work toward. And so we have to have some degree of focus. And that's why when there's groups like the Benevolence Committee or the Food Pantry, it's good to have people with various perspectives and gifts and how we discriminate and meet needs. But... It is imperative for our church that we are known for caring for those who are forsaken. Now, let me just make this application. This is not just widows. This is those who perhaps have been divorced in some way, been marginalized. But it's unique that there is special blessings to those who are of the church. Galatians chapter 6 Verse 9 and 10 talks about that, that, that we are especially to give to those who are part of the church. However, when we come across marginalized in our society, then it's important for us as church to be looking toward that and how to meet those needs. Do you know that the state of North Carolina is number eight in sex trafficking, slavery, in our nation, number eight, because of the role of the interstates and how they play. It is very possible that you have been around them and you did not even recognize it, did not even know it. I want to challenge you. Learn about that. Go to sites like World Relief and learn about what to look for. When we find orphans, those without parents. That's one of the things I'm, I'm pleased that in North Carolina, that being part of the Baptist, that we have the Baptist children's homes. We see in Kinston and, and Concord. There's ways that we can help in that way. But it's also upon us that when we see it in, around us, to be willing to take in the children. Do you know that's how differences are being made in India and other places? That the, the churches who are taking in orphans that would normally be left up to gangs to teach them about the Lord and to provide for them. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm 50 and I'm going to bring a child into my life. Well, that's where faith comes in. <laughs> where it's pleasing to the Lord and trusting in Him. We're the family of the living God. It ought to look like it. It ought to have some idea of loving those who the world says, we don't care about them because they don't have any power anyway. And so this is a very practical teaching. And I just want to encourage you to take this and say, as I live my life, who can I bring into my life? Who can I help and care for? There are some godly widows in our church. And I would tell you that if you would take them in and say they are going to be my mom and I'm going to treat them like my mom, especially if they don't have any children, they don't have any family, you will be blessed by doing that. And they'll have a lot of things to give to you spiritually and wisdom to help you. We have them in our church. Just ask around. You can talk to me. I can point you to some. We have some who are godly who have been forsaken. And there are blessings 
And they're some of the greatest treasures of our church as they are devoted to God and teaching children and being a blessing to others. Let's make sure that we're a blessing to them as well. I just want to just look around for a little bit. It's okay. Don't look at me. I don't want you looking at me. I'm not a widow. But look around. See who's here. Do you know them? Do you know their situation? And being willing just to know them enough to know what their needs are. We're a family of the living God. He's alive. And he's active. And when we commit to the heart of God, there's going to be a love, a sacrifice, a giving. That's a part of it. And this is as much of us as being part of the Great Commission We cannot be a greenhouse for the Great Commission if we don't have a community that does this. That speaks volumes to Nightdale, to Raleigh. When people learn that there's a church that does things like this and seeks out those who are forsaken and left without power and influence, be it orphans, prostitutes, widows, part of love it's part of faith and Jesus made sure that we understood this in Matthew 7 when he said when you cared for those who were in prison visit those who were sick you visited me you loved me And so for the love of God, for the grace of God, in view of these mercies, I beseech you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, that you may prove that will of God, which includes being as living sacrifices for the benefit of others, in view of God's mercy. Let's pray.